Chapter 10 of The Spirit of the Age or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Garfield D'Souza. Chapter 10 William Wordsworth. Mr. Wordsworth's genius is a pure emanation of the spirit of the age. Had he lived in any other period of the world, he would never have been heard of. As it is, he has some difficulty to contend with the habitude of his intellect and the meanness of his subject. With him, lowliness is young ambition's ladder. But he finds it a toil to climb in this way the steep of fame. His homely muse can hardly raise her wing from the ground, nor spread her hidden glories to the sun. He has no figures nor no fantasies which busy passion draws in the brains of men, neither the gorgeous machinery of mythologic lore nor the splendid colours of poetic diction. His style is vernacular. He delivers household truths. He sees nothing loftier than human hopes, nothing deeper than the human heart. This he probes, this he tampers with, this he poises, with all its incalculable weight of thought and feeling in his hands, and at the same time calms the throbbing pulses of his own heart by keeping his eye ever fixed on the face of nature. If he can make the life-blood flow from the wounded breast, this is the living colouring with which he paints his verse. If he can assuage the pain or close up the wound with the balm of solitary musing, all the healing power of plants and herbs and skyey influences. This is the sole triumph of his art. He takes the simplest elements of nature and of the human mind, the mere abstract conditions inseparable from our being, and tries to compound a new system of poetry from them, and has perhaps succeeded as well as anyone could. Nihil humani ame alianum puto is the motto of his works. He thinks nothing low or indifferent of which this can be affirmed. Everything that professes to be more than this, that is not an absolute essence of truth and feeling, he holds to be vitiated, false and spurious. In a word, his poetry is founded on setting up an opposition and pushing it to the utmost length between the natural and the artificial between the spirit of humanity and the spirit of fashion and of the world. It is one of the innovations of the time. It partakes of, and is carried along with, the revolutionary movement of our age. The political changes of the day were the model on which he formed and conducted his poetical experiments. His muse, it cannot be denied, and without this we cannot explain its character at all, is a levelling one. It proceeds on a principle of equality and strives to reduce all things to the same standard. It is distinguished by a proud humility. It relies upon its own resources and disdains external shew and relief. It takes the commonest events and objects as a test to prove that nature is always interested from its inherent truth and beauty without any of the ornaments of dress or pomp of circumstances to set it off. Hence the unaccountable mixture of seeming simplicity and real abstruseness in lyrical ballads. Fools have laughed at, wise men scarcely understand them.
He takes a subject or a story merely as pegs or loops to hang thought and feeling on. The incidents are trifling in proportion to his contempt for imposing appearances. The reflections are profound according to the gravity and the aspiring pretensions of his mind. His popular inartificial style gets rid at a blow of all the trappings of verse of all the high places of poetry the cloud-capped towers the solemn temples the gorgeous palaces are swept to the ground and like the baseless fabric of a vision leave not a wreck behind all the traditions of learning all the superstitions of age are obliterated and effaced we begin de novo on a tabula rasa of poetry the purple ball the nodding plume of tragedy are exploded as mere pantomime and trick to return to the simplicity of truth and nature. Kings, queens, priests, nobles, the altar and the throne, the distinctions of rank, birth, wealth, power, the judge's robe, the marshal's truncheon, the ceremony that the great ones longs, are not to be found here. The author tramples on the pride of art with greater pride. The ode and epode, the strophe and the antistrophe, he laughs to scorn. The harp of Homer, the trump of Pindar and of Alcius are still. The decencies of costume, the decorations of vanity, are stripped off without mercy as barbarous, idle and gothic. The jewels in the crisped hair, the diadem on the polished brow, are thought meretricious, theatrical, vulgar, and nothing contents his fastidious taste beyond a simple garland of flowers. Neither does he avail himself of the advantages which nature or accident holds out to him. He chooses to have his subject a foil to his invention, to own nothing but to himself. He gathers manna in the wilderness. He strikes the barren rock for the gushing moisture. He elevates the mean by the strength of his own aspirations. He clothes the naked with beauty and grandeur from the store of his own recollections. No cypress grove loads his verse with perfumes, but his imagination lends a sense of joy to the bare trees and mountains bare and grass in the green field. No storm, no shipwreck startles us by its horrors, but the rainbow lifts its head in the cloud and the breeze sighs through the withered fern. No sad vicissitude of fate, no overwhelming catastrophe in nature deforms his page. But the dewdrop glitters on the bending flower. The tear collects in the glistening eye. Beneath the hills, along the flowery vales, the generations are prepared. The pangs, the internal pangs, are ready. The dread strife of poor humanity's afflicted will struggling in vain with ruthless destiny. As the lark ascends from its low bed on fluttering wing and salutes the morning skies, so Mr. Wordsworth's unpretending muse in russet guise scales the summits of reflection while it makes the round earth its footstool and its home. Possibly a good deal of this may be regarded as the effect of disappointed views and an inverted ambition, prevented by native pride and indolence from climbing the ascent of learning or greatness, taught by political opinions to say to the vain pomp and glory of the world, I hate ye, 
seeing the path of classical and artificial poetry blocked up by the cumbrous ornaments of style and turgid commonplaces, so that nothing more could be achieved in that direction but by the most ridiculous bombast or the tamest servility, he has turned back partly from the bias of his mind, partly perhaps from a judicious policy, has struck into the sequestered veil of humble life, sought out the muse among sheep-goats and hamlets and peasants' mountain horns, has discarded all the tinsel pageantry of verse, and endeavoured, not in vain, to aggrandise the trivial and add the charm of novelty to the familiar. No one has shewn the same imagination in raising trifles into importance. No one has displayed the same pathos in treating of the simplest feelings of the heart. Reserved yet haughty, having no unruly or violent passions, or those passions having been early suppressed, Mr. Wordsworth has passed his life in solitary musing, or in daily converse with the face of nature. He exemplifies in an eminent degree the power of association, for his poetry has no other source of character. He has dwelt among pastoral scenes, till each object has become connected with a thousand feelings a link in the chain of thought, a fibre of his own heart. Everyone is by habit and familiarity strongly attached to the place of his birth or to objects that recall the most pleasing and eventful circumstances of his life. But to the author of the lyrical ballads, nature is a kind of home, and he may be said to take a personal interest in the universe. There is no image so insignificant that it has not, in some mood or other, found way into his heart. No sound that does not awaken the memory of other ears. To him, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. The daisy looks up to him with sparkling eye as an old acquaintance. The cuckoo haunts him with sounds of early youth not to be expressed. A linnet's nest startles him with boyish delight. An old withered thorn is weighed down with a heap of recollections. A grey cloak, seen on some wild moor, torn by the wind or drenched in the rain, afterwards becomes an object of imagination to him. Even the lichens on the rock have a life and being in his thoughts. He has described all these objects in a way and with an intensity of feeling that no one else had done before him and has given a new view or aspect of nature. He is in this sense the most original poet now living, and the one whose writings could the least be spared, for they have no substitute elsewhere. The vulgar do not read them, the learned who see all things through books do not understand them, the great despise, the fashionable may ridicule them, but the author has created himself an interest in the heart of the retired and lonely student of nature which can never die. Persons of this class will still continue to feel what he has felt. He has expressed what they might in vain wish to express, except with glistening eye and faltering tongue. There is a lofty philosophic tone, a thoughtful humanity, infused into his pastoral vein. Remote from the passions and events of the great world, he has communicated interest and dignity to the primal movements of the heart of man, and engrafted his own conscious reflections on the casual thoughts of hinds and shepherds. Nursed amidst the grandeur of mountain scenery, 
he has stooped to have a nearer view of the daisy under his feet, or plucked a branch of white thorn from the spray. But in describing it, his mind seems imbued with the majesty and solemnity of the objects around him. The dull rock lifts its head in the erectness of his spirit. The cataract rose in the sound of his verse. And in its dim and mysterious meaning, the mists seem to gather in the hollows of Helvellyn, and the forked skitter hovers in the distance. There is little mention of mountain scenery in Mr. Wordsworth's poetry, but by internal evidence, one might be almost sure that it was written in a mountainous country, from its bareness, its simplicity, its loftiness, and its depth. His later philosophic productions have a somewhat different character. They are a departure from a dereliction of his first principles. They are classical and courtly. They are polished in style without being gaudy, dignified in subject without affectation. They seem to have been composed not in a cottage at Grasmere, but among the half-inspired groves and stately recollections of Cole Orton. We might allude in particular for examples of what we mean to the lines on a picture by Claude Lorraine and to the exquisite poem entitled Laudemia. The last of these breathes the pure spirit of the finest fragments of antiquity. The sweetness, the gravity, the strength, the beauty, and the languor of death, calm contemplation and majestic pains. Its glossy brilliancy arises from the perfection of the finishing, like that of careful sculpture, not from gaudy colouring. The texture of the thoughts has the smoothness and solidity of marble. It is a poem that might be read aloud in Elysium, and the spirits of departed heroes and sages would gather round to listen to it. Mr. Wordsworth's philosophic poetry, with a less glowing aspect and less tumult in the veins than Lord Byron's on similar occasions, bends a calmer and keener eye on mortality. The impression, if less vivid, is more pleasing and permanent. And we confess it, perhaps it is a want of taste and proper feeling, that there are lines in poems of our authors that we think of ten times for once that we recur to any of Lord Byron's. Or, if there are any of the latter's writings that we can dwell upon in the same way, that is, as lasting and heartfelt sentiments, it is when, laying aside his usual pomp and pretension, he descends with Wordsworth to the common ground of a disinterested humanity. It may be considered as characteristic of a poet's writings, that they either make no impression on the mind at all, seem mere nonsense verses, or that they leave a mark behind them that never wears out. They either fall blunted from the indurated breast, without any perceptible result, or they absorb it like passion. To one class of readers, he appears sublime. To another, and we fear the largest, ridiculous. He has probably realized Milton's wish, and fit audience found, though few. But we suspect he is not reconciled to the alternative. There are delightful passages in the excursion, both of natural description and of inspired reflection, passages of the latter kind that, in the sound of the thoughts and of the swelling language, resemble heavenly symphonies, mournful requiems over the grave of human hopes. But we must add, in justice and in sincerity, that we think it is impossible that this work should ever become popular, 
even in the same degree as a lyrical balance. It affects a system without having any intelligible clue to one, and instead of unfolding a principle in various and striking lights, repeats the same conclusions till they become flat and insipid. Mr. Wordsworth's mind is obtuse, except as it is the organ and the receptacle of accumulated feelings. It is not analytic, but synthetic. It is reflecting rather than theoretical. The excursion, we believe, fell stillborn from the press. There was something abortive and clumsy and ill-judged in the attempt. It was long and laboured. The personages, for the most part, were low, the fair, rustic. The plan raised expectations which were not fulfilled, and the effect was like being ushered into a stately hall and invited to sit down to a splendid banquet in the company of clowns, and with nothing but successive courses of apple dumplings served up. It was not even to cheer Patrick. Mr. Wordsworth, in his person, is about the middle size, with marked features and an air somewhat stately and quixotic. He reminds one of some of Halbion's heads, grave, saturnine, with a slight indication of sly humour, kept under by the manners of the age or by the pretensions of the person. He has a peculiar sweetness in his smile, and great depth and manliness and a rugged harmony in the tones of his voice. His manner of reading his own poetry is particularly imposing, and in his favourite passages his eye beams with preternatural lustre, and the meaning labours slowly up from his swelling breast. No one who has seen him at these moments could go away with an impression that he was a man of no mark or likelihood. Perhaps the comment of his face and voice is necessary to convey a full idea of his poetry. His language may not be intelligible, but his manner is not to be mistaken. It is clear that he is either mad or inspired. In company, even in a tete-a-tete, Mr. Wordsworth is often silent, indolent, and reserved. If he has become verbose and oracular of late years, he was not so in his better days. He threw out a bold or an indifferent remark without either effort or pretension, and relapsed into musing again. He shone most, because he seemed most roused and animated, in reciting his own poetry or in talking about it. He sometimes gave striking views of his feelings and trains of association in composing certain passages. Or if one did not always understand his distinctions, still there was no want of interest. There was a latent meaning worth inquiring into, like a vein of ore that one cannot exactly hit upon at the moment, but of which there are sure indications. His standard of poetry is high and severe, almost to exclusiveness. He admits of nothing below, scarcely of anything above himself. It is fine to hear him talk of the way in which certain subjects should have been treated by eminent poets, according to his notions of the art. Thus he finds fault with Dryden's description of Bacchus in the Alexander's Feast, as if he were a mere good-looking youth or boon companion, flushed with a purple grace, he shews his honest face, instead of representing the god returning from the conquest of India, crowned with vine-leaves and drawn by panthers and followed by troops of satyrs, of wild men and animals that he had tamed. You would think, on hearing him speak on this subject, that you saw Titian's picture of the meeting of Bacchus and Ariadne, 
So classic were his conceptions, so glowing his style. Milton is his great idol, and he sometimes dares to compare himself with him. His sonnets, indeed, have something of the same high-raised tone and prophetic spirit. Chaucer is another prime favourite of his, and he has been at the pains to modernise some of the Canterbury Tales. Those persons who look upon Mr. Wordsworth as a merely puerile writer must be rather at a loss to account for his strong predilection for such geniuses as Dante and Michelangelo. We do not think our author has any very cordial sympathy with Shakespeare. How should he? Shakespeare was the least of an egotist of anybody in the world. He does not much relish the variety and scope of dramatic composition. He hates those interlocutions between Lucius and Caris. Yet Mr. Wordsworth himself wrote a tragedy when he was young, and we have heard the following energetic lines quoted from it, as put into the mouth of a person smit with remorse for some rash crime. Action is momentary, the motion of a muscle this way or that. Suffering is long, obscure, and infinite. Perhaps for want of light and shade, and the unshackled spirit of the drama, this performance was never brought forward. Our critic has a great dislike to Gray, and a fondness for Thompson and Collins. It is mortifying to hear him speak of Pope and Dryden, whom, because they have been supposed to have all the possible excellences of poetry, he will allow to have none. Nothing, however, can be fairer or more amusing than the way in which he sometimes exposes the unmeaning verbiage of modern poetry. Thus, in the beginning of Dr. Johnson's Vanity of Human Fishes, led observation with extensive views survey mankind from China to Peru, he says there is a total want of imagination accompanying the words. The same idea is repeated three times under the disguise of a different phraseology. It comes to this. Let observation with extensive observation observe mankind. Or, take away the first line, and the second, survey mankind from China to Peru, literally conveys the whole. Mr. Wordsworth is, we must say, a perfect drocancer as to prose writers. He complains of the dry reasoners and matter-of-fact people for their want of passion and he is jealous of the rhetorical declaimers and rhapsodists as trenching on the province of poetry. He condemns all French writers, as well of poetry as prose, in the lump. His list in this way is indeed small. He approves of Walton's Angler, Bailey, and some other writers of an inoffensive modesty of pretension. He also likes books of voyages and travels and Robinson Crusoe. In art, he greatly esteems Bevick's woodcuts and Waterloo's sylvan etchings. But he sometimes takes a higher tone and gives his mind fair play. We have known him enlarged with a noble intelligence and enthusiasm on Nicolas Poussin's fine landscape compositions, pointing out the unity of design that pervades them, the superintending mind, the imaginative principle that brings all to bear on the same end, and declaring he would not give a rush for any landscape that did not express the time of day, the climate, the period of the world it was meant to illustrate, or had not this character of wholeness in it. His eye also does justice to Rembrandt's fine and masterly effects. 
In the way in which that artist works something out of nothing and transforms the stump of a tree, a common figure into an ideal object, by the gorgeous light and shade thrown upon it, he perceives an analogy to his own mode of investing the minute details of nature with an atmosphere of sentiment. And in pronouncing Rembrandt to be a man of genius, feels that he strengthens his own claim to the title. It has been said of Mr. Wordsworth that he hates conchology, that he hates the Venus of Medesis. But these, we hope, are mere epigrams and due d'esprit, as far from truth as they are free from malice, a sort of running satire or critical clenches, where one for sense and one for rhyme is quite sufficient at one time. We think, however, that if Mr. Wordsworth had been a more liberal and candid critic, he would have been a most sterling writer. If a greater number of sources of pleasure had been open to him, he would have communicated pleasure to the world more frequently. Had he been less fastidious in pronouncing sentence on the works of others, his own would have been received more favourably and treated more leniently. The current of his feelings is deep but narrow. The range of his understanding is lofty and aspiring rather than discursive. The force, the originality, the absolute truth and identity with which he feels some things makes him indifferent to so many others. The simplicity and enthusiasm of his feelings with respect to nature renders him bigoted and intolerant in his judgments of men and things. But it happens to him as to others that his strength lies in his weakness, and perhaps we have no right to complain. We might get rid of the cynic and the egotist and find in his stead a commonplace man. We should take the good the gods provide us. A fine and original vein of poetry is not one of their most contemptible gifts, and the rest is scarcely worth thinking of, except as it may be a modification to those who expect perfection from human nature or who have been idle enough at some period of their lives to deify men of genius as possessing claims above it. But this is a God that jars, and we shall not dwell upon it. Lord Byron we have called, according to the old proverb, the spoiled child of fortune. Mr. Wordsworth might plead, in mitigation of some peculiarities, that he is the spoiled child of disappointment. We are convinced, if he had been earlier a popular poet, he would have borne his honours meekly and would have been a person of great bonhomie and frankness of disposition. But the sense of injustice and of undeserved ridicule sars the temper and narrows the views. To have produced works of genius, and to find them neglected or treated with scorn, is one of the heaviest trials of human patience. We exaggerate our own merits when they are denied by others, and are apt to grudge and cavil at every particle of praise bestowed on those to whom we feel a conscious superiority. In mere self-defence, we turn against the world when it turns against us, brood over the undeserved slights we receive, and thus the genial current of the soul is stopped, or vents itself in effusions of petulance and self-conceit. Mr. Wordsworth has thought too much of contemporary critics and criticism, and less than he ought of the award of posterity and of the opinion, we do not say of private friends, but of those who were made so by the admiration of his genius. 
he did not court popularity by conformity to established models, and he ought not to have been surprised that his originality was not understood as a matter of course. He has not too much on the bridle, and has often thrown out crusts to the critics in mere defiance or as a point of honour when he was challenged, which otherwise his own good sense would have withheld. We suspect that Mr. Wordsworth's feelings are a little morbid in this respect, or that he resents censure more than he is gratified by praise. Otherwise, the tide has turned much in his favour of late years. He has a large body of determined partisans, and is at present sufficiently in request with the public to save or relieve him from the last necessity to which a man of genius can be reduced, that of becoming the god of his own idolatry. End of chapter 10